0: All right, uh, announcements. Uh, the only announcement that I'm aware of is the one related to Camp Arete, and that's coming up on July 16th to 23rd. Anything new, Jeff? Uh, no, sir. Everything's on and Good. Good, good. Continue to pray for them. Uh, Andy Woods is a speaker this year, so pray for him and pray for people to be uh, ready and prepared to study uh, study the Word. Uh, speaking about studying the Word, Alan found an amusing <clears throat> cartoon today. Now, I know some of you were copied on that email, but I thought that for those of you who weren't, you would enjoy uh, looking looking at this. It's somewhat appropriate. As the uh, pastor says, recently I've had complaints that my sermons were too intellectual. The following adults are invited to come up for the children's sermons. My second church that I pastored would have fit that perfectly. And I would have named most of the adults. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess sin. Confess sin means simply to admit or acknowledge Uh, any sin that we are aware of to God the Father, instantly He forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's not a license to sin, but it is the uh, freedom to recover from sin so that we can move from walking according to the sin nature to walking according to or by means of God the Holy Spirit. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we express our gratitude to you for all that you have provided for us. Above all, we're thankful for your word that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword because it pierces us, it exposes our thinking, it enables us to be transformed from uh, those who are following and walking after the cosmic system and the world system to those who are trusting in Christ, who are living out your will operating on the basis of divine viewpoint and not human viewpoint. Father, remind us that this is not a study related to a philosophy of life, although it is that. It is much more, it is related to our personal relationship and walk with you, that you might be glorified and that we might be prepared to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom and throughout eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Peter is writing this epistle, much like James is, to a group of Jewish background believers who are facing the challenges of opposition and maybe even persecution from those who are around them because they have trusted in Jesus as Messiah, but the Jewish community generally was rejecting jesus as messiah even though through most of the first century the christian church was primarily made up of jewish background believers they're located we know in what is now turkey which was at that time uh sort of the north central part of what is now turkey and he is writing to encourage them on why we should live today in light of eternity that summarizes this whole epistle and as we get into the study of the main body which started back back in verse um back in verse 13 the first 12 verses provide the introduction i pointed out that this is wrapped around some imperatives that gives us the structure so when we look at this first part well, before we get there The key that we're going to see tonight that he's going to transition to at the end of this chapter and becomes a focal point of the next chapter is the power of God's word to strengthen us in the midst of trials and temptations. Now, in the verses that we're looking at, I thought I had a slide here. Give me a second here, and I'll try to locate it if I can get. Yeah, there we go. Uh, get our slide chart here. We have these four commands that are given. First Peter one thirteen through 14 says to rest your hope fully on the grace brought to you through objective thinking. So the first thing that he focuses on in handling uh, testing and fiery trials is to focus on hope. Second thing, he says, is to set yourselves apart to the service of God in every area of your lifestyle. That is going to relate to experiential sanctification. The word sanctification means to set apart. The same word group that's translated sanctify is also translated consecrate and be holy. The way this verse is translated commonly is be holy for I am holy, but that gets into the language of holiness is often misunderstood. So I translate its meaning here as to be set apart to the service of God. That leads to living your life a certain way, conducting your lives in fearful respect of God. So what we see here are several of those spiritual skills or problem-solving devices. We see the idea of confession, which is so that we are in right relationship with the Lord, uh, experientially sanctified or set apart to his service— Uh, Doctrinal orientation, faith rest drill, part of those basic spiritual skills are exhibited in this uh, mandate to conduct your lives in fearful respect of God. The problem-solving device of personal sense of your eternal destiny is embodied in the command to rest your hope fully on the grace of Brought to you in first Peter one thirteen through fourteen and then, as we get into more advanced spiritual skills, we're to love one another as Christ loved the church so these are all embodied in these this opening section. now we stopped last time and we were looking at the command in first peter one one twenty two since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit. In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. A couple of things you should note so we can understand this. It is a <clears throat> uh, long sentence in the Greek that begins in verse 22 and goes to the end of the quote, the Isaiah 40 quote, in verse 25. It's comprised of two basic components, basically the foundation and the reason for the command, and the command is given towards the end of verse 22, but you have two reasons given for it. First of all, because you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, and second, because you have been born again. Those form the foundation, and they are basically two sides of the same, same coin, as we will see here. And then, in the con, in his content, he transitions to talking about the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. And at that point, he's going to quote from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter forty, uh, verses five. Uh, five through eight. Very important to understand why this quote and what's going on here in his thinking, because even though he's addressing these Jewish background believers in the first century who are facing opposition, all of this applies just as much to any believer in the body of Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile. It has a special resonance for them, as Jewish background believers, because of their knowledge of the Old Testament, because of their knowledge of their own history, and that is going to be different for Gentiles. One of the things that I've noted in studying both James and in studying First Peter, is and especially Hebrews. If you all remember our study of Hebrews, the writer of those three epistles, uh, the writers all assume that their audience really knows the Old Testament inside and out. So it takes a lot more time to uh, teach those to Gentiles who have a a paucity of Old Testament knowledge. So as we look at this, it's important to recognize that the command to love one another is qualified by two participles. Now this is where you get I get into grammar, but the grammar really is important to expose the thinking of, Paul, of, of Peter and the thinking of God the Holy Spirit, because the grammar sets up what's important and helps us to understand the mechanics for our thinking. So we're to love the brethren, but it's based on two reasons, and those reasons are expressed by these These uh, participles. The first one has to do with purification at the beginning of verse 22, and the second has to do with regeneration at the beginning of verse 23. They're both expressed by perfect participles, which means that these two participles roughly occur at the same time. So that's important for understanding the passage. Peter is saying, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, uh, we have to understand how that relates. This is a perfect active participle. In the Greek, it doesn't have an article with it. The way the participle functions, if, if the artic- an article is there, it's used more like a noun. If no article is there, it's used more like a verb. That means it's adverbial. So it modifies the main verb, which is to love in some way, and it can be a number of different ways, but here it is causal because something has already happened in the past. Uh, That's the thrust of that grammar there. The perfect tense indicates something that has happened and is completed in the past. So it's not talking about something ongoing. So even though purification and the term uh, hognizo here for purification could refer to those who are being purified in the process of their spiritual life, which would be talking about confession of sin. Uh, Since it's talking about a significant completed action in the past, it has to be talking about positional sanctification, which is, uh, is what occurs at the instant that we are saved. We become Positionally cleansed. We become positionally pure because we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ, not because we receive an infusion of righteousness. If you come from a Roman Catholic background, the idea in Roman Catholicism is that you receive infused grace each time you participate in the sacraments. So this is totally different. This isn't an infusion that changes you in terms of reducing the sinfulness of your sin nature. It is talking about the fact that we have been given the righteousness of Christ so that we are declared righteous and pure, not because we've done anything or our nature has changed or anything like that, but because we have the righteousness of Christ. So then we're told that this main command down in at the end of the verse uh, love one another is an aorist active imperative and again this gets into some technicalities in the in the Greek but in Greek grammar the timing of the participle is always in relation to the timing or the tense of the main verb since it's an aorist imperative the action of either a perfect tense verb or an aorist imperative, a perfect tense participle or an aorist tense participle means that that action has to happen before you can fulfill the action of the of the command. So again, we can't love one another unless, first of all, we are regenerate. You can't generate this kind of love. It's not something that you can reach inside yourself and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Once again, the important principle we always have to remember is that the spiritual life is not difficult. It's impossible. And the only way we can live the spiritual life is by walking by the Spirit, letting the Holy Spirit produce this. Paul quotes this same idea, talking about loving your neighbor as yourself in Galatians 5.14. He follows that two verses later to show how do you do that. You do it by walking by the Holy Spirit. Then he talks about the war between the the Spirit and the flesh, the sin nature, talks about the characteristics of the life of a person who's walking according to the Spirit, the works of the flesh. And then he talks about what the life of the spiritual believer is, the believer who's walking according to the Spirit. And he lists a number of characteristics identified as the fruit of the Spirit. And what's the first characteristic? The first characteristic isn't sleep. The first characteristic is love. The fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love, then joy, then peace. Love is the the foremost. So we know that loving one another isn't something you can generate because we can each look around or think mentally about people in our lives, in our families, uh, people we work with. And apart from the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we're never going to generate any love for them. Just think about that person in your life that, that that has a political belief and persuasion that is 180 degrees opposite you, and God says, love them, as Christ loved the church. Okay, I made my point. You can't do it on your own. None of us can. We have to have the uh, energizing power of God, the Holy Spirit. So the command is to love one another because we've purified our, our, our souls, Uh, And then we recognize that this has to be done only through the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God and the Word of God. We're sanctified. That's what we're talking about. In John 17, 17, we're sanctified by truth. Uh, Jesus repeats this concept both in John 17, 17 and verse 19 that 's We know this already, so we know doctrinally that if peter 's going to be talking about being able to live a sanctified life he 's not talking about walking an aisle or having a de- moment of dedication or rededication he 's not talking about uh, some sort of spiritual experience, which is what you get in. in in many denominations because there's a failure to understand the role of God, the Holy Spirit, and the role of the Word of God. And so it's the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that enable us to live a set-apart life. Other than that, it can't happen. So he says that based on what has happened at salvation, in terms of being purified in our souls... We have to ask this question, which I've already answered. We asked this last time, is the purification a positional purification or experiential? And the answer is going to be because of the fact that the participle, verse 22, and the participle in verse 23 are both perfect tenses, that that indicates that that this must be positional because it happens before the command of of the Word. So that even though the Scripture talks about these experiential, experiential cleansing in James 4, 8 and 1 John 3, 3, using the same word, the perfect tense indicates past completed action. So that's important because he's reminding these believers, just like you, just like me, who are going through opposition, who are going through testing, going through trials, that the way you get through it is by focusing on what we have in Christ, what has already been provided for us, what is ours positionally, and then living in light of that. Paul does the same thing over in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, where he says, reckon yourselves or consider yourselves dead to sin. Positionally, we die to sin at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. So to love one another, we recognize that, that in order to do this, first of all, there had to be this purification, this cleansing that occurred positionally, making us a new creature in Christ. John thirteen thirty four, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That is the prime directive for the spiritual life. It's not something that starts the day that you are regenerate. I want to bring this point out in just a minute. It's not something that starts as a baby believer. When you were a year old, you really didn't love your parents. When you were four or five, you began to love them like a four- or five-year-old. When you get a little older, you know and understand more about them. You have developed a personal relationship with your parents and you love them in a more mature way, when you get past your 20s, you begin to love them in an even more mature way. So loving one another is a growth process. It's not something that happens instantaneously, but it is the goal of the spiritual life. Now, I said that because this is exactly what the grammar of the text indicates. Because you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, or by obeying the truth, it's instrumental there, that obeying the truth is the truth of the gospel, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is done through the Spirit. He is the one who enables us to be regenerate. He is the divine power that regenerates us. And we know this from passages like Titus three five, which says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So it doesn't have anything to do with what we do or what we think. It has to do with what we believe not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy. He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So those two concepts, the washing uh, of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit are connected. The Holy Spirit renews us and gives us new life by cleansing us at that moment of salvation. So that becomes our personal cleansing and personal purification. So this text says that when we obey the truth, through the Spirit, we were purified. Same concept that we have in Titus three five, And then it goes on to say, uh, in sincere love of the brethren. Now that's really not a good translation there. Because on the screen you see on the left that this box represents the preposition that is translated "in" in the New King James Version, and it's the Greek preposition eighth, which means uh, which expresses a direction or a goal that we are uh, purified through the Spirit. Toward the direction of expressing the ultimate goal of a mature Christian, toward the goal of a sincere love of the brethren. Now we'll talk about what that word "sincere" means in just a minute. Uh, It means a a love that's the box on the right, a love that is free from pretense or deceit. It it has integrity. The only way it can have integrity if it's grounded in the integrity of god the character of god his righteousness and his justice so what peter is saying here is that they're to love one another that's the command and the ground is understanding what happened to you when you were saved we call that doctrine positional truth we we have a nice label but sometimes when we use these labels It goes over people's heads. What it means is that you were identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You became a new creature in Christ. And part of what happened is you were cleansed and renewed completely. You were made alive together in him so that now you can move toward the goal of loving the brethren. Now, the Greek word that's translated loving the brethren is the word Philadelphia, the same Greek word for the city that we have here, and a city that was in Asia Minor in the ancient world, and it means uh, that. And it means that this is a love that is expressed towards other believers. It is the compound word of philos, which is the noun noun form, or phileo, which is the verb form and adelphos, which is the Greek word for a brother. So it's directed towards someone else in the body of Christ. And what's interesting is it doesn't say agapao, it's a compound based on phileo. Now, the difference here, and sometimes these words overlap and they're almost synonymous, uh, the verb that Jesus used when he says to love one another is agapao. But when you look at how phileo is used in the New Testament, it is the word that is used by, it's the only <clears throat> word that is expresses God's love that is expressed towards only believers. God does not phileo unbelievers. God has agapao towards unbelievers, but he doesn't have phileo towards unbelievers. You look at Revelation 3, um, 19, 20, uh, very famous verses. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and lets me in, I will come in and sup with them. It's a picture of not of salvation. A lot of Christians mess it up. It doesn't have anything to do with getting saved or justified. He's talking to Christians. Christ is knocking at the door of the church, wanting to come in to have fellowship with them, not to save them. They're already saved. It's a passage. And right before that, it talks about the fact that he loves them. And the word used for love there is phileo, not agapao, which means he's not talking about unbelievers. God does not have a phileo-type love, or phileo-type love towards unbelievers unbelievers so here i think the reason that love of the brethren is expressed more in terms of phileo that compound word here is because it is it's emphasizing that it's within the body it emphasizes that it's a more intimate love that is within the body whereas agapao would have a slightly different nuance but i'm really slicing the baloney kind of thin here uh it's still ex- it's expressive it isn't sitting across the room and just saying, okay, I, I don't really like that person. I'm just going to love them from afar. Because the classic illustration of the kind of love that we're to show is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it involves a person that doesn't know the person who's been beaten up and robbed on the road at all. So that's the impersonal love aspect But it also involves action. Jesus tells the story about a a Jew who has left uh, Jerusalem and is headed home. Uh, That's why he is on the road and walking through Samaria. If he had come down that way, he would have been unclean when he got to the temple. So he can go home that way because he's done at at the temple. And he's on his way home, and he gets waylaid, he gets ambushed, he gets beaten up and robbed and left for dead, and this Samaritan who the Jews hated the Samaritans, they're unclean, they were uh, considered to be a mixed breed people, they weren't pure Jewish blood, and so they just, just, the Pharisees especially, just despised uh, the, the Samaritans. And so this Samaritan comes along, and even though he 's despised by the person who is on the ground, he picks him up, he cleans him up, he treats his wounds, he takes him to a an inn and makes sure makes sure that he is taken care of so impersonal love doesn 't mean it isn't doesn 't get involved, and it doesn 't take initiative to do the right thing and the good thing for the object of the love, even if it's not a person you really want to spend time with, even if it's not a person you like, even if it's a person you'd rather love from a long, long distance, okay? So let's just put that whole idea that we can love some from afar to bed, that that is a misrepresentation of this kind of love. It is a love where you get involved in even somebody's life that you don't want to be to help them and to doesn't mean you have to make them their, your best friend and you you know you can you don't even have to friend them on Facebook, but you are going to treat them not only in goodness but it's going to be a, a, an objective and maybe even an aggressive involvement in their in their life to help d- them when they're in distress and to demonstrate the same kind of love that God had for those who were at enmity with him uh, when he sent his son to die on the cross for them. So uh, this is a love of the brethren, and then then he says, love one another fervently, and I'm not sure that's a good way to translate it. It's the Greek word ektinos, which is at the bottom. It's an adverb, and it indicates more the idea of constancy. Uh, more the idea of constancy. And so, again, this word wipes out the pa- idea of a passive loving of the brethren. It is consistent, it is constant, it is day in and day out. It's intentional, it's focused, it's continuous, and it's purposeful. This is not something you're going to generate from your nasty little sin nature. Your flesh can 't do this only if you 're walking by the spirit can you demonstrate this kind of love. It is something the holy spirit it 's impossible for any of us to do this in the flesh. We can only do it when we 're walking by the uh, by the spirit so this is a um, uh, a sincere love, which is the idea of free from pretense or deceit we 're not trying to fake it you can 't fake. The kind of love Jesus is talking about in John thirteen uh where it's through the Spirit toward a uh, deceitless or free from pretense type of love for other believers we're to love one another constantly consistently with a katharos, a pure heart that is indicates again cleansing from sin, we're in walking by the Spirit, we're in right relationship with the Lord. Now, as we look at this, what he's saying is that one characteristic of any group of believers, any church, any Christian group, is this constant love for one another. And just as another note, what we've seen in this section is that Peter has talked about about faith, which we saw back in um, the uh, the previous section. He talks about faith, and he talks about love, and he talks about hope. So these are the same things that uh, Paul talks about at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now, in this church age, after the apostolic period, what continues is faith, hope, and love. That summarizes the Christian life. So as we go to the next verse... It's a continuation of the same thought. Remember, the command is to love one another, and now he's going to express another reason or basis for that command, and that is through this participle that is translated to be born again. Ana Ganao. Ganao is the basic verb for birth. Ana is a prefix, preposition for again. And it's, a, uh, again, a perfect passive participle. Perfect tense means it's a past-completed action. It's not going on now. It's not something that began in the past and continues. It's, it began in the past, and the results continue. Okay? So it's not a process. It's something that happened. It's over with, but the results continue into the present. Having been regenerated... And then he uses a couple of his favorite words that we have already seen in 1 Peter. He uses these words corruptible and incorruptible. Uh, These two words are on the screen in the bottom uh, bottom part of the panel. Uh, Aphthartos is the word for imperishable or incorruptible. It begins with that Uh, first letter A, which in the Greek is a negative, and the root is what you see in the other one. It's thartos, meaning something that is perishable or corruptible. Uh, Peter has already used these terms. He talked about our inheritance as being imperishable in First 1 Peter 1, 1.4, and later on he will talk about women who have imperishable qualities such as a gentle and quiet spirit. We'll get to that eventually. On the other hand, he says uh, that believers are redeemed with Christ's precious blood. We're not redeemed with perishable or corruptible things such as silver or gold. So these words are used by Peter several times. He likes contrasting this idea, and it fits with something he's going to get to in a minute, and that is the failure of grass and flowers that fade versus the eternal value of God's Word. Again, the words aren't used there, but it's the same idea, of that which continues and glorifies God, which is imperishable, versus all of the details of life which are perishable and corruptible. So he says that uh, because we have been born again, and it's not from corruptible seed, but incorruptible. That is, human beings are born through a mortal seed that is destructible. You can destroy it. You can kill it. It, it ends. Mortal life ends. But this is a seed that is uh, incorruptible. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be uh, killed. It is uh, something that is going to go on uh, forever. It's a, the incorruptible seed. Now, questions are what is, the, uh, what is the nature of this seed, and it is seen in the next clause. It is through the Word of God. The Word of God lives and abides forever. That means it's incorruptible. It is imperishable. So that makes it clear that the seed is the, the gospel, it's the word or the message of God. This is the same thing that we see in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. You have the sower comes along and he casts his seed And as Jesus explains the parable, he says the seed is the message of the kingdom. So when we look at the phrase here, the word of God, we're talking specifically about the divine message related to the gospel, because our whole context here is talking about uh, the process of regeneration, that it is through the Spirit, we've been purified by obeying the truth, but... um, Yeah, by obeying the truth through the Spirit toward the sincere love of the brethren. And what he says in verse 23 is that this is also done through uh, the Word of God. It's a different preposition that's used there. It's the preposition ek, which means from or from the source of, but ek and and, um, uh, dia, for for through are often synonymous, both indicating instrumentality or means. So what we see is the, the again this emphasis on the spirit of God, plus the word of God. You don't have the word of God operating apart from the spirit of God, or the spirit of God operating apart from the word of God. It takes us back to what, what I said about Titus three five. It is through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, but it happens. Uh, through the word, the message of God, the message of the gospel. And so this is the becomes the focal point as he is shifting. And we see a number of places in Scripture where the gospel is related to this message of God. Uh, the word that's used here in the Greek for word is the word logos, which is also the title given to Jesus by John, the apostle John, in uh, the first chapter of John, in John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Uh, That is referring to the living word of God. But logos is also used a number of times to refer to the written word of God, or the message of God, the message of the gospel. And here are some uh, related passages. I've just put 3 on the screen but there's a list at the bottom of the of the of the panel in Ephesians 1:13 Paul says in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel after you heard the message of truth when the gospel was proclaimed to them they responded Philippians 2:16 holding fast the message of life so here, the word often we we get into these uh, routines where we always translate logos with word. When a lot of times it's it's it can be message, uh, the message. Much of uh, when you look at the word logos, it has a wide range of nuances. So holding fast the message of life in Colossians one five, Paul says because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the message of the truth of the gospel. So again, it's talking about the message which you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's our hope. Is that without Christ, we don't know what our future is. We don't know what our destiny is. We're bound up in a life based on if we care a life based on religion where we're trying to work our way to heaven. Whether you're talking about Pharisaical Judaism and Rabbinical Judaism of the Second Temple period, or as it became during the life of Christ, or whether you're talking about Uh, the rabbinical Judaism as it developed through the Middle Ages and on into modern times, or whether you're talking about Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Far Eastern religions such as Buddhism and Confucianism and Hinduism, all of these various world religions, and even a number of philosophies like Manichaeism, which was kind of philosophical and kind of uh, uh, also religious, Manichaeism or... Uh, the various philosophies that came out of the greeks or their mystery religions everything is based on work somehow you have to do something to get the goodness from god on your in your corner but the bible contrasts itself with that so that there's nothing we can do it's all god who does it Man is incapable of doing anything to please God. We can't generate enough righteousness. This is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. We can't generate, we can't do enough tzedakah to ever please God. So it's that message of the truth that gives us life, that it is faith alone in Christ alone. So Peter goes on to say that this word of God is characterized by two things, and again he has two participles. This is a lesson in participial grammar tonight. Uh, two participles. Again, they are uh, they're adjectival, and so it's, they're translated like nouns. Um, rel- relative clauses in the New King James: the word of God, which lives and abides forever. But without an article present, they should be translated more as like a gerund, the word of God that's living and abiding, or uh, through the word of God are through the living and abiding Word of God, as I've translated it there in brackets. The Word of God is living. That's, that's Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the mirror, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is alive, and here it is. Also, it abides, it continues. Uh, it is never going to stop being alive and powerful. And then what happens is we get into a, a quotation, a quotation. And we have to understand uh, sort of the dynamics of what's going on here. So based on what we've read in verses 22 and 23, we're commanded to love one another— How in the world are we going to do that? The reason for it is to understand what happened at salvation, at regeneration. We're purified, we're cleansed, we're given a new life, and it's because of that new life from this imperishable seed that we're going to be able to move forward and love one another. So this imperishable, non-destructive seed is defined as the Word of God. It's given us a new spiritual life, and it's our responsibility to push forward in terms of that, uh, on the basis of that understanding, that imperishable seed, which is the Word of God. And what Peter is doing here, he's going to contrast the quality of life that we should have as Christians— with with the the temporal quality of the things around us, we can watch it right now. I've driven through te- out into the you know area around Houston two or three times in the last couple of weeks. I don't remember a middle of June or the end of June where it's been so green everywhere. It's green everywhere. Usually it's starting to get brown by this time, but it's really green. But everything you look at, when the, as the grass grows, if uh, it stops raining for more than three or four days, it will turn brown, and it will begin to dry up, and it will begin to wither. And sooner or later, when we get into late July or August, we're going to see this. That's what happens every year. The flowers that we see are going to... Uh, wilt, and they'll, the flower is going to fall off of the stem, and everything's going to destroy. Everything in our life gets destroyed. You just think about the people you know, that once they get past a certain age and those health problems begin to set in as they get to those last uh, few years or months of their life, all the things that they spent their life invested in to build and develop and to grow fades in importance. Uh, A lot of folks, as they get to that period when they're over 60, begin to realize that it's not going to be long. Are we really prepared for the end game? And the end game isn't the last few weeks or years or our retirement in this life. The end game is what happens after we die. And that's what Peter's talking about here, that everything we're invested in in terms of the details of life is summarized through this metaphor uh, of grass and the flower of grass and how that is temporal and will fall apart, but it's the Word of God that goes on forever. So there's a contrast between the perishable seed that ends up in something that it just, just destroyed versus that which has ongoing glory That lasts forever. And so, to do that, he takes us back to the core and the foundation for everything, which is the Word of God, the truth about who God is, who you and I are, who human beings are, and what God has for us. And to do that, he is going to take this quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 5 through 8, and he is going to apply that. So let's think just a minute about uh what is taking place here in Isaiah chapter 40. What I want to do is have you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40 and we're going to think about this broad uh broad context. Isaiah 40 is a significant chapter in Isaiah. Isaiah is understood to be broken into two or uh, three sections, and the first section that everybody agrees on is the first 39 chapters, and then 40 to 66 represents the second half. There's some people who come in and break it up a little differently, but generally those are the two categories which which we see here. In Isaiah chapter um, 1 through 39, he's really addressing his contemporaries and telling them what is going to happen. And in those chapters, he describes um, the coming judgments, not only on Israel, but also on Babylon, on Edom, on Moab, on Assyria, and on Babylon, and gives a look at, at the end times. But in Isaiah chapter 40, he shifts his attention, and he's really writing not for his contemporaries, which is in the A a seventh century, but he is, uh, or eighth century, but he is writing to those who will be part of the Babylonian captivity. He is writing to those who are uh, in exile from Israel. They are either those who are taken as young people into captivity to Babylon or their descendants. And he is, uh, it's a message of comfort. What we're reminded in Isaiah 46, uh, 40 through 66 is that God has given them grace, as he has every one of us, before there's divine discipline. He's going to give them grace during the divine discipline, and he's going to give them grace after the divine discipline. But they're coming to a time frame When they are nearing the end of the divine discipline on Israel, a time frame that is close to uh, 538 when they will be restored uh, to the land. And so the message shifts. It's a message that focuses them on how God is going to comfort them when he takes them back to the land. And the backdrop is the hypothetical, if you're obedient— if you fulfill the covenant, then I am going to bring in the kingdom and fulfill all of the promises I made to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And so there is that message of of hope. But that message of hope comes at a time when they're out of the land, when they are being, um, uh, when they've gone through persecution, they've gone through extreme testing and now god is going to bring their focus back on him now the parallel is interesting in terms of peter because those to whom peter are those to whom peter is addressing they are in the diaspora uh, they haven't returned back as jews But beyond that, they have become Jewish believers in Messiah. They are Jewish Christians, and they are facing opposition. There are a lot of similarities between what they are facing in their lives in the Diaspora and what uh, the Jews at the time of the Babylonian captivity were facing. And the message for both is even though you're going through all this testing and opposition, there is still hope. And God is still the one in control. And if you respond in obedience to him, then God is going to bless you even in the midst of adversity. And this will accrue to God's glory and will benefit you in eternity. So that's the larger uh, context here is God is talking about his Uh, telling them to focus on His future redemption for His people, just as He would tell us as Christians to remember that eventually Jesus is going to come back. Uh, We're going to be raptured. We're going to be taken. There'll be a distribution at the judgment seat of Christ of rewards. And then eventually when he returns at the second coming, we'll be with him and we will rule and reign with him uh, in his kingdom. So these themes that we find in Isaiah 40 are the same themes that we find in, I, in uh, first, first Peter. Now Isaiah 40 begins in the first two verses with the key message, if we're focused right at the beginning. And God says to Isaiah, the prophet, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. Uh, now, what we have to understand here is that biblically, The message of comfort is not a message of hand-holding. It's not a message of finding your safe space. It's not a message of giving people a hug. None of those things are wrong, but that's not the biblical message of comfort. We look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and Paul is concerned about comforting the Thessalonians because they're very concerned about the fact that that their loved ones have died. And they thought Jesus was going to come back before anybody died, and they're dying, and, and they're concerned and upset, and they want to know what's happening. And so he explains what's going to happen that there are those who are going to sleep in Jesus, a euphemism for physical death before Jesus returns. And then when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ. Christ will rise first and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and thus we will all be with the Lord forever and then at the the end he says comfort one another with these words so comfort in the bible is not based on uh, feel good sentimentality hugs and all these other things it's based on the content of truth help people understand what is really going on in life and that that comforts them with, with reality. And that's the same thing that, that, that we see here. Isaiah is told to comfort my people. How? Go give them a group hug. No, that's not what he says. Speak comfort, speak truth to Jerusalem. Cry out to her. What's the message? Your warfare's ended. You were under siege by the Babylonians. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple all of that ended, you're taken into captivity. Uh, As a result of that and the judgment, your iniquity is pardoned. That is the temporal discipline for disobedience has been dealt with and that, that Israel had received double for all her sins. God brought down the roof on them and judged them. And then you are to cry out. It's a new voice starting in verse 3 and give a new message, a message that is related to someone coming in the future. Now, these verses are taken and fulfilled in John the Baptist, who is a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare for the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The message is God is coming. That's the message of hope. You've gone through all of this horror, all this suffering, all this difficulty day in and day out of life, and that comes a lot of different ways in people's lives. It can come through crises of health. It can come through financial crises. It can come through crises in relationships and family, all kinds of ways. But the reality is this life is going to end. We're going to forget about it. God is coming. So, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then verse 4, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. Notice, how many valleys? Every valley. How many mountains? Every mountain. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. This is just a poetic way of saying God's going to bring judgment For everybody, justice will finally prevail, and he is going to level things out. He's going to take care of those who are crooked and take care of all of the the, the trauma and the adversity, and his glory will be revealed, and it's universal. It is to everyone. Uh, Everyone is is going to see the glory of the Lord, and all flesh shall see it together not just believers. This isn't talking about the rapture. This is talking about Israel. It's talking about the entire world at the time uh, Jesus, the Messiah, returns at the end of the tribulation. All flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out, and he said, what shall I cry? Now, in context, what's happening is, is that this introduces this last section of Isaiah, which focuses on the realization of the literal geopolitical kingdom of Israel on this earth. And that this is going to be the time when the Messiah comes in fulfillment of the uh, Abrahamic and the Davidic and the new covenants. And Israel is going to be back in the land as uh, in fulfillment of the land covenant. And God is going to establish his kingdom where he is going to roll back the curse. And it's going to be time, a time of almost 100 percent perfection on this earth. The problem is those who are born during this time are still going to have sin natures. And that's going to lead to a a moderate amount of um, of difficulty and suffering as a re- result of this. So when we um, when we look at this and comp- and why Peter is going here, because I've taken us up right to the brink of this this quotation. What we're going to see is Peter recognizes and identifies for us. Uh, that the word of God that Isaiah is talking about, the message that's going to come to those in Isaiah's, uh, or those at the time of the Babylonian captivity, that this message is one of permanence. And Isaiah is introducing these promises that are going to be true and that they are uh, not based on what Israel or anyone else earns or deserves. They are without price. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. You can't buy it. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Salvation has no price tag. You can't buy it. This is grace. You can, you're given it. Um, you're given it from the Lord. So grace means that God does all of the work, and we don't do anything. We simply accept it as a free gift. What happens in religion, all the religions of the world, all the philosophical systems, is people have to do something in order to have eternal blessing and eternal happiness. It's all based on human effort. But because human effort fails because uh, the root has been destroyed, the root is corrupted, and everything that we do is the fruit of a poisonous tree. Everything that we do is corrupted because of that root in Adam, and the only way that we can have uh, a new life is if God does it. So that's why Christianity emphasizes faith alone in Christ alone. So what happens as we look at this passage is that, that Isaiah says, um, cry out well, and and." The Lord says, cry out. And Isaiah says, what shall I cry? And this is the message. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. That's judgment. The reason the world is corrupt is because of God's judgment on sin. He goes on to say, surely the people are grass. That is, they're the same way. They're going to dry up and blow away. There's no permanence with people. Then he concludes, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What's interesting, I ran across this quote by Edward Selwyn in his commentary on 1 Peter. Many people think that this is one of the finest commentaries on the Greek text, uh, in the English language, and he says when he's commenting on this passage in First Peter one, he says every leading thought. He, he's talking about it, the the context of it in Isaiah forty. Every leading thought here that is in Isaiah forty fits in with what our author, First Peter, uh, Peter, has been saying. He too is addressing readers who are exiled and oppressed and he has the same message for them the contrast between the perishability of all mortal things and the incorruptible of the incorruptibility of the christian inheritance and hope the passage quoted isaiah 45 through 8 the passage quoted is therefore the po- focal point of a much longer passage which must have been often present in the apostles mind that last statement is extremely perceptive. One of the things that I've brought out many times recently is that the Jewish people in the first century were well-educated in the Scriptures. Many of them knew all of the Old Testament by heart. They had memorized it. Certainly the religious leaders did, the scribes, the Pharisees had all of the Old Testament memorized so that when you Talked about a, a a verse when Jesus cries out from Psalm twenty two, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" He 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 probably recited the entire psalm. They they didn't have chapters and verses at that time, so they would they would just quote part of it and assume that everybody else would bring to their mind all of the context and information and doctrine that was in that particular. Uh, a quotation. That's what Selwyn is saying here, is that this passage, even though it's only verses 5 through 8 that's quoted, Peter's got the whole context in his mind. He's thinking about the, all of the circumstances that surround uh, Isaiah chapter 40 and what Peter, uh, what Peter is saying. Now, we don't have time to go through all of it. But basically what is going on here is summed up in the Latin phrase, Sic Transit Gloria Mundi. Uh, First time I heard that, I was watching a film in 1970. Most of you saw the same film. It was Patton. And I'm not sure if what George C. Scott said as Patton was originally written and stated by Patton. He was quite a prolific writer, and I remember... uh, uh, Pastor Theme used to give me all kinds of books to go read on military history when I was in college. And uh, he gave me the Patent Papers, two volumes. I loved reading them, that was uh, very important. But uh, at least the character of uh, Patton in the film made this statement. He said For over a thousand years, Roman conquerors returning from the wars enjoyed the honor of a triumph, a tumultuous parade. In the procession came trumpeteers, musicians, and strange animals from conquered territories, together with carts laden with treasure and captured armaments. The conquerors rode in a triumphal chariot. The day's prisoners were walking in chains before him. Sometimes his children, robed, stood with him in the chariot or rode the trace horses. But a slave stood behind the conqueror holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory was fleeting, sick transit, Gloria Mundi. That's what Peter is saying here, is that everything in this life is transitory and it will leave. The only thing that matters is what's in our soul from the word of God, and it's the word of God that's alive and powerful. So 1 Peter one twenty four and 25, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, I set up this chart here to show that not all of Isaiah 46 through 8 is is cited here. Verse 7 is not. What we have is part of verse, the last part of verse six, and the last and all of verse eight. And that's what's cited, because the focal point is at the end that the word of the Lord stands forever. And then in the very last verse of uh, 1 Peter 1, Peter says, Now this is the message which by the gospel was preached or taught to you. And what he's concluding here is that this message, that is, that, that the word of God is the power and it brought this regeneration to you, is the foundation for understanding how to live in the midst of trials and, and testing. And we'll come back to this because it immediately shifts... Into talking about the importance of the word, when we get into First Peter chapter uh, chapter one, talks about the first thing that we have to do is lay aside a bunch of sins. And I bet most people have no clue what that means. Does that mean I have to reform my life before I can study the word? Well, we'll find out next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, and we pray that you'll help us to focus on them and to be reminded that we live this Christian life only in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and that we constantly have to be aware of and conscious conscious about walking by him, depending upon him, trusting in him in terms of walking and the spirit, living the spiritual life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with all that we've learned tonight. In Christ's name, amen.